Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Now again, if you have a, if you want me to back up and restate something or whatever for your notes, well, all right, I may not see you out there. Now this chapter presents the final section of the writer's mosaic on the priestly ministry of the Christ. This will be the end of it as far as that goes. This section will deal with the sacrifice of Christ, it's on the board there, as it contrasts with those uh, laws of Moses. There will be presented a strong contrast between the two systems of sacrifices in the Old and the New Covenant. So that's what we're going to see. We're informed right there what we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to be seeing the two systems of sacrifice in the Old and New Covenant as they're contrasted uh, with each other. As, he, as the writer shows the superiority of Christ in his sacrifice and the fact that those sacrifices in the Old Testament were merely a shadow or an announcement, a foreannouncement of better things to come, but they did not take away sin. They just announced that the day was coming when sin would be taken away. There's nothing uh, more characteristic of the Old Testament than its system of worship and atonement sacrifices. Their sacrifices not only dealt with their worship toward God as it centered around the tabernacle, the altar, the sprinkling of the blood, but also atonement for the forgiveness of sin. Atonement brought about the, re uh, the reconciliation of both the individual Hebrew and of the nation. Even though the law of Moses had already been taken away, its tabernacle has been vacated by God under this new covenant. It's already been vacated when Hebrew writers write in this message. He is no longer symbolically represented or resides in the temple of Jerusalem. And its sacrifices are no longer valid. The Hebrew priests were still functioning as before and as if their service was acceptable to God. The fact will be clearly demonstrated in this chapter. Verse 1. And we'll discuss the language there in verse 1, what it says. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices that are repeated endlessly year after year after year, make perfect those uh, who draw near to worship. And so those sacrifices didn't make them people perfect. It merely announced that the perfect day was coming. Uh, the sacrifices of the law were only a shadow of good things that are coming. 
They were not the realities themselves. The good things coming, the statements made there in that verse, were the sacrifices of Christ seen in its com composite fulfillment of the shadow sacrifices of the law. As already mentioned, the shadows, plural, the shadows that existed under the law system not only involved the shadow priesthood, the shadow tabernacle, the shadow covenant, and in this section particularly the shadow sacrifices. Uh, sacrifices. They simply foreshadowed the cross of Christ. That's a simple way to place, put it. In the same verse, he tells us that those sacrifices were only shadows. It was impossible for the Hebrew worshiper to be made perfect. He couldn't under those shadowy things uh, in his relationship with God. The very endless repetition of those sacrifices merely confirmed their <coughs> futility as far as perfecting the worshipers. And so keep that in mind. They've done this year after year, day after day. And that just merely showed that it was imperfect. It was merely speaking of the perfect that would come one day. Hebrews 9 and verse 9 discusses the tabernacle. It was a temporary figure indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And so here in chapter 10, verse 1, the writer lays the fun fundamental uh, de uh, defect of that law system at the foot of their sacrificial system. It didn't get the job done. Their sacrifices simply could not remove the sin problem. They would not be acceptable as worshipers before God. Because the very holiness of God demands that those that stood in his presence be free from sin. <coughs> and of course you're very familiar with 1 John 1.4, I'm sure. Where John explains that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then the severe warning to the false teachers and the people who accepted who were falsely worshiping God. He said, if you walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God, you're a liar because there is no darkness with God. It isn't there. It isn't there. There is no darkness with God. And so you can see the problem here is sin. It brings about darkness, a shadow of darkness on man's conscience. And he can't feel worthy to be in the presence of God but Jesus gave us that ability to feel worthy because he made us worthy anyway so the veils of separation that the Old Testament system established and maintained between God and his worshipers symbolized the fact that man is not back into the relationship that he had with God before the sin problem was ever introduced in the Garden of Eden <sighs> Adam and God walked hand in hand together. They had this beautiful relationship that God wanted. 
The fellowship between them was unhampered, unhindered, and unlimited by the existence of any kind of veil of separation. And so between Adam and God, there was no veil of separation. The veil of separation came as a result of sin. And man could understand by that veil of separation that separated him in the temple from going into the presence of God. It told him very simply that sin hadn't been paid for yet. They were making sacrifices for sin, but those sacrifices were merely a shadow of the sacrifice that Christ would make. And so God was forgiving their sins, but it was in view of Calvary. It wasn't because of the animal sacrifices. They were shadows that forespoke of the perfect sacrifice. All right, now when, uh, when I thought about this a little bit, uh, here the fellowship between them was unhampered, unhindered, and unlimited by the existence of any kind of veil of separation. Can you imagine? Stop just a moment to think about this. Unlimited fellowship with the creator of this universe. The one that made life in simple form so small that I can't even, we just know they're there. We can't even pick them up a lot of times on a microscope or telescope. And look at all the life systems in this universe in the bottom of the sea, in space, in everything. The little ants that crawl into your house and all them little critters. God made them. And you mean I can have unlimited fellowship and walk with one who created this universe? Now, doesn't that kind of excite you a little bit? It does me. <laughs> so no wonder Paul said, when we cross over, we'll know all things. <laughs> that's something. We know what we need to know here. That's limited. But one day we'll know all things. But then when the sin problem in, intervened, man was driven from the presence of God and the cherubim of glory are placed at the east of the Garden of Eden to keep man from coming back into the unveiled relationship. Now, if you've never thought about it, God done us a favor when he guarded the way back to the tree of life. Because if we had went back and ate of it without a sacrifice for sin, we would have lived in a state of sin forever, forever. How'd you like to live with politicians like we got now? And the mess that they can stir up. How'd you like to live with man's intelligence forever? How would you like that? <laughs> and put up with the fear and the division and, and uh, all that man brings about. Uh, the, the servitude. Whether you realize it or not, you're a slave somehow, some way to this whole system. You are, and you spend your life there. And God's not upset with it. Uh, we brought it about because of sin, and he gave us a, an exit, didn't he? He gave us a way out. But there's where 
redemption comes is in our suffrage. Unveiled relationship could not exist until the sin problem was solved. The built-in inadequacies of those sacrifices was that they did not remove the sin. And therefore, the veils of separation uh, uh, remained. They was there until Christ died and he rent that veil in the temple as a symbol or sign that now we had access into the presence of God. In chapter 9, verse 14, the writer affirmed that the blood of Jesus does cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. That's the only thing that could. You wouldn't feel worth anything if merely a lamb that uh, was slain for your sins. But when that lamb was a man, when that, when that lamb was an intelligence that offered himself, he was the priest that offered the sacrifice of himself, <coughs> then that manifests the love of God to the nth degree, doesn't it? And it clears our conscience. If God loved me that much, in all of my ugliness, if God loved me that much, he's one worthy to look to and one to worship and serve. After all, he's the God that made me. He's the God that feeds me. He's the God that takes care of me and sees to my needs and assures me of his supervision in my life. He's God. He's my father. I'm very proud to have a father like that. The writer will insist that the year after year and day after day sacrifices there in verse 11 maintained the veil of separation between God and his worshipers. Verse 2. The writer said, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilt, guilty for their sins. And so if those sacrifices could have ever restored the relationship that God and Adam had in the Garden of Eden, then those sacrifices uh, would have ceased. Uh, the very fact that their continuation year after year after year should convince the reader of the futility of those sacrifices. That's why they had to be offered year after year. Next year, another one. Next year, another one. Next year, another one. And that in itself of its repetition and continuation showed that the perfect hadn't come yet. It made no difference how many times those Levitical priests offered their sacrifices, those veils of separation remained intact to tell a man that he was still cut off from God because of sin. Verse 3, it says, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Well, that's easy to understand, isn't it? The question might be asked, who was reminded of sin? Because here's 
these curtains and things were reminders of sin. But who was reminded of sin? Quite evidently, the people were reminded because the veils remained in spite of their sacrifices. And it is evident that God was reminded because he knew their sins were not yet covered. It's his plan. And he knew they weren't covered. And it's clear that the priests were reminded because they had to repeat the sacrifices they offered on an annual basis. <coughs> the fact that God remembered does not necessarily imply that he remembered their sin against them or against them. He didn't remember it against them. Then and there God forgave, but he did not cover their sin by their, those sacrifices. Verse 4, because, and here's why, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 9.13 states that at best those sacrifices ceremonially, 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 ceremonially cleansed outwardly, and that's all they done. There was a shadow of better things to come. But, but they did not touch the conscience. There's where man lives in his conscience. Deep down in the very core of his being is his conscience. And the only thing that could clear that would be God in his power at Calvary. And because of Calvary and by Calvary. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats take away sin. This whole scene is one of frustration to all the parties involved. You almost get the impression that the frustration is not only felt on the part of the worshipers, it's felt also on the part of God. Remember those sac uh, that those sacrifices did give God the expediency with which to forgive sins. But that was only in view of the cross of Jesus. So how did God forgive their sins? Because time don't mean anything to him. He, but it does to us. But he looked ahead in, in time that we live in and saw the day when his son would be sacrificed. When was his son sacrificed? Well, the foundation of the world was ever laid. 2 Timothy 1.9 Ephesians 1, verse 4. And many other passages says the same thing. Those are the only two that I can remember. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 22 says that the sacrificial blood was necessary for forgiveness according to the law. But it was not that blood which actually covered the sin. Verse 5. Therefore. Now therefore is always based upon wherefore the wind be for, so he's drawing a conclusion here. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. 
Now prophetically, Jesus acknowledged that the sacrifices of the law are not given uh, God what he wants. The prophecy was recorded in Psalms 40, verse 6 through 8. He quotes there. God really wanted man to be restored to the relationship that was defined by Eden. An unhindered relationship. Uh, an unending relationship. Uh, a relationship with God in everything. God created man for fellowship with himself. That's just a fact. Eden expressed the very intimacy of unhindered communicate communion and fellowship that was wanted by God. God wants our fellowship. Now don't ask me why, but he does. And incidentally, while we're on this, let me throw this in into this uh, thought. Every individual is very unique we don't take them unique we murder them by the millions on the battlefields of life and, uh, and the struggles and everything we just count them as that much flesh tons of flesh but still in all and you think about it you'll never find two people exactly alike and that in itself declares the glory of God in his creation not only in Psalm 19 do the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork and they preach day and night and to all the inhabitants of the earth and there is no language barriers in his message because the darkest humanity understands as they look up and see the cosmos and wonder who built that look at the glory of the one who had such power and insight and built all that and so, uh, such union is certainly what man would want. But when man sinned, that relationship was destroyed, and the blood of bulls and goats just simply cannot restore it. That's the whole point. So the Hebrew writer prophetically moves us back into the days of David, when David wrote Psalms 40. This statement was made by Jesus to God the Father. So Jesus is speaking to God here in this prophecy of David. This is the way in which Jesus confronted the fundamental shortcomings of the law of Moses. And he confronted it under the law of Moses in the Old Testament prophecy. He addressed God and he says in essence, there in 40, I recognize that those sacrifices are not giving you what you want, Father. Let me tell you, Father, I will go to the earth and I will give you exactly what you want. And I want... So what does God want? He wants perfection. He wants innocence. And so you see how I enjoy Christ's innocence and his sacrifice? You see that? And so God, uh, Jesus said in the prophet David in Psalms 40, a body thou hast prepared me, uh, because that's the only thing that would sac sac satisfy God. And I will, uh, through my sacrifice, 
restore the relationship that will bring about exactly the desired relationship that you had always wanted with mankind. Now that's something when you stop and think about God wanting relationship with his creation. He made us to have a relationship with us. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve. They were highly intelligent. They weren't the caveman picture at all. Highly intelligent. Would God create a caveman to reason with? Uh, come here, dummy, let me talk to you. <laughs> I mean, he, <laughs> no, no. Made a highly intelligent. If Adam were to think about this, if Adam was to come back from the dead and look at you and me, he'd be in shock. Because he'd swear up and down, no, you didn't come from me. Ain't nobody that stupid come from me. Be like that guy in the movie. That old sheriff, he slapped his boy and he said, when I get home, I'm going to slap your mama. Ain't nothing that dumb can come from my loins. <laughs> anyway, that's the idea. Prophetically, Jesus was programmed to be uh, to be restored to restore that those sacrifices could not produce. Sacrifices, the text said, the sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but yet God commanded them because they foreannounced the real sacrifice of a body prepared for that sacrifice. So, uh, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire was a statement there in Psalm 40. Simply states that God's will for fellowship with man was not being accomplished by Levitical sacrifices. That's what it's saying. So you see how the Old Testament even renounced those sacrifices in doing all that they were set up to do. But what was the primary reason for them being set up to, and what did they do? They pointed to the real sacrifice. They were shadows. They were figures. Sacrifices had to do with atonement. And you know what atonement means. It means at-one-ment. In, in other words, bringing man back into one with God, with his creator. At-one-ment. Atonement. That's the best way I know to remember the word. At-one-ment. Uh, Colossians 1.13, I believe it is. We're made nigh unto God by the blood of His Son. There is that at-one-ment as a result of blood, and specifically the blood of this body that uh, Jesus praised the Father for and thanked the Father for and fulfilled uh, for the Father's benefit. And so... Sacrifices had to do with atonement. Offerings had to do with worship of God that was mentioned in that verse of Psalms 40. Neither provided God with the relationships that he desired. But they spoke of those sacrifices that would that Christ would make. And so the Psalms goes ahead and says, but a body you prepared for me. Now that is a phrase that requires some explanation. 
the original Hebrew in Psalms 40 and verse 6 says, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. The Greek in Hebrews 10 verse 5 <coughs> makes an unusual translation of the Hebrew text. The pierced ears were really dug out ears uh, is the language of the psalmist David. How do the words prepare for me a body translate into dug out ears? How did God prepare this body? He spoke to it through the ears. How does he prepare your sacrifice as a body through your ears? Think about it. The explanation is perhaps the best given by the prophet Isaiah in one of his great servant prophecies relating to Jesus. The entire prophecy from Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 7, is presented here to explain the meaning and contained in those two statements. And here it is. The sovereign Lord has given me an instruction, an instructive, instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens uh, my ear to listen like one being taught. And that's the look at the natural way of learning through the ear. Hearing by the ear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Isaiah continued here, The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious, I have not drawn back, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, and therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Now that is an, an extensive citation there, but it gives many insights into the attitude that Jesus had toward the instructions that the Father gave him and the total disposition he made of his entire body uh, to accomplish God's redemptive purpose. Weakened ears, or wait, excuse me, awakened ears are ready to hear the Father's will. And so God's got to dug, dig his ears out. He did. He's dug mine and yours out, hasn't he? We're willing to listen. Those open ears permitted Jesus to be educated in what God wanted done, and those ears gave him the message to speak in such a way that the weary were sustained, as you read in that verse of Isaiah 40. The weary would be sustained, upheld, strengthened. The listening attitude of Jesus with his open ears was simply, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Command, and I will obey. Because his ears are open. Most people's ears are not open. They're not. And if they are, they're just 
a little bit. And every now and then something offends them. They shut them right down. But you see what comes before the body sacrifice, before our offering to God? The hearing through the ear. Faith comes by hearing. So if I know how to uh, present myself before my Creator, He comes by faith. And faith is derived through hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. So this term, dugout ears, are attuned to God's commands. They're listening. And through the mission was to be fulfilled with, with suffering, the Lord Jesus was not rebellious, the text says, nor did he draw back at all. When the Father had an ear of one who said, Here I am, I have come to do your will, O God, then the will of God will be fully done. And that's only when the will of God is done in this congregation or in any congregation. It's when we have the leadership in the congregation that listens to God and opens his ear and says, Here, speak and I'll, it'll be done. God first got Jesus' ear, then he got his back for those who would beat him. Then he got his cheeks for those who would pull out his beard. Then his face for mocking and spitting. And then, too, his face set like flint to endure the suffering. I like that statement, he set his face like flint. You know, when a man determines to do something, whether it's for his family, for himself, or for his, his community, or for his uh, statehood, the only way it's accomplished is how. He sets his face like flint. He sets his eyes on what needs to be accomplished. And sure, he's taken the onslaught of the sword. He's cutting his arm and his leg. But he does not stop. He look, keeps his eyes on his purpose and his intent and the, the victory. That's setting your eyes like flint. Flint's pretty hard. There's a lot of sparks involved in the conflict. The Father also got his head uh, for the crown of thorns, his hands and feet for the nails, his side for the spear, and his soul as an offering for sin. Has God got all your body parts? Are you willing to offer all your body parts? That's what, that's what it said he did. A body you gave me. And he offered all of his body parts. He offered his face to the spitters. He offered his head for the crown of thorns. He offered himself in every way. And so when God got the attention of Jesus through his ear, he got in substance the whole body of Jesus. That's the way you're going to get us through the ear. With this explanation of the open ear, it's easy to see how the Greek translators arrived at their somewhat uh, interpretive usage of the prepared body. That body was prepared by God opening the ears. 
God's in the ear opening business. He knows how to open ears, doesn't he? So when you see your children suffer, as much as it may hurt, as much as it may bring tears and sorrow to you and loss, loss of sleep, you have the courage to go to them and, says, and tell them, has God revealed anything to you yet? <laughs> you think God's trying to tell you something? Because you don't... What did God... What did the Lord tell Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The pricks or the goads that's mentioned there was those sharp sticks that the Jew would put uh, behind the implement that this ox pulled. And if that ox wanted to throw a fit and just kick up his heels, he was kicking those sharpened spikes and he just hurt himself. And that's the way life's designed. It's hard to kick against the pricks. You can do it. <coughs> But God's hoping after you suffer a little while, you come to recognize that that ain't the way to go. And it might open your ears. So God's in the ear opening business in many ways. Verse 8 of Hebrews 10. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. Well, he commanded them, and here it says he didn't desire them. No, they were not the completion of everything. They were merely a part of the plan. You know, when you build a house, what's the first thing you do? You set up scaffolding. But are you happy with the scaffolding? Are you Are you going to call your wife out, Look what I built here. Put up the scaffolding. We're going to live the rest of our lives in this. No. No, the scaffolding is only the way to the establishing of what you really want. So sacrifices were defined as a atonement sin offerings. And offerings there were defined as burnt offerings of worship. The first point was that they were neither desired by God nor did they please God. And yet those offerings and sacrifices were required by the law that God gave. Because again, he's teaching man. The teaching process hasn't been fulfilled yet. He was teaching us that we needed a sacrifice for sin. In the very sacrifices that he commanded them to offer. Because they would be shadows that forespoke of the perfect sacrifice. The reason the law required them is to be understood by the fact that they were prophetic of Christ's work of atonement and mediation of worship, and that's all they were. They were a reminder of those. Through the law, ordained, uh, though the law ordained them, and they were instructed by God, and even carried out by divine decree, they still did not accomplish what God wanted. That's why we read a minute ago in Psalms 40, A body thou hast prepared me. Because sacrifice and offerings I would not be pleased with. They were never intended to remove sin. They just stood as a blueprint 
of a sacrifice that would remove the sin problem. And so Jesus, his acknowledgement of the fact, says, I have come to do your will, O God. When Alexander the Great conquered the land of Palestine and the Greek language began to replace the Hebrew tongue in daily life in the nations of Israel, they began to forget their native language. God had to provide the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek so the people could understand the law. That explains the usage of Greek in the New Testament times. And it also explains the variations in the wording of the original Hebrew text in the Greek. Now we understand why the uh, idiomatic expression of dugout ears can be translated with the statement about a body prepared for me. Because that's how that body was prepared, with dugout ears. First comes the dugout ears. Uh, quite evidently, a person with stopped up ears does not listen to the commands of God. God generally classified such a person as being uncircumcised in heart and ear, like in Acts 7, verse 51. But a man had, uh, uh, but a man that had dug out ears is one to whom God could speak. Certainly, there is a world of difference between those animals that knew nothing about God's will and the Messiah who was lovingly giving his life to completely satisfy the will of God. God wanted a sinless sacrifice and in Jesus he received exactly what he wanted. Verse 9 Then he said, Here am I. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. Uh, verse 8 began by saying, uh, Firstly, God did not want those Levitical sacrifices. Now verse 9 begins by saying, Then, uh, or in substance or secondarily, and so when the writer says he set aside the first, we know that he's talking about the first sacrificial system of the law of Moses. Uh, that's in the context there. That is the one God did not will or want. That's the one God didn't will or want. And when the writer says God established the second, we know he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ. And so there's an explanation of the first and the second there. And that is the one God willed. That's what he willed in the first place. This completes the removal of all of the elements of the Hebrew system. Chapter 7 presents, presented the removal of the Levitical priests and of the inauguration of the priesthood of Christ. Chapter 8 then presented the removal of the Mosaical covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant of Christ. Chapter 9 presented the removal of the old Hebrew tabernacle and the inauguration of the new heavenly sanctuary of Christ. Now this chapter, uh, the sacrificial system of the law, is set aside so the sacrifice of Christ can be established. Once again, 
We're impressed with the two systems that cannot and will not coexist. They cannot coexist together. The priests of the old system were set aside, it says, so that the new priests may be introduced, it says. Chapter 7, verse 18. The old law was removed to make place for the new covenant that you read about in the 8th chapter, verse 7 through 13, and chapter 9, verse 1. The former sanctuary was abolished by the rendering of the veil and its uh, rending of the veil and its replacement by the new heavenly sanctuary in chapter 9, verse 8, and verse 11. <coughs> now he set aside the sacrifices of the old so that he could establish the new sacrifices. That's what that says. This concept is clearly confirmed in the Greek in this verse. There is the Greek what is called a henna clause. Henna clauses are a purpose defined. One thing is done so that or in order that another thing may happen. And so God set up the old so that the new could be the, the completion of it. The book of Hebrews is full of such henna clauses, but none more def, uh, de, defini, de, definitive than the one used in this context. Well, we're going to have to close there. Our time's up. But you can see it takes a little more than just reading to understand what God's trying to tell you if your ears are cleaned out <laughs> and your faith will be the development of God's word through the ear. So today is the 25th. Mm -hmm. Thank you.